We're coming to an end of our trimester. We had, it feels like the longest trimester that has, we have ever had in our entire lives. Does anybody else feel that way? <laughs> I think it's just, <laughs> that's funny. You're funny. I think it's because of um, all the breaks. Does it, like, it feels like the holidays were so long ago, but it actually was during this trimester. So praise God, we're coming to an end, and we're going to start a new one. Amen. All right, let's uh, open up with prayer. We close that part with prayer. We're going to open up this time with prayer. But my message today is the fools. What did I say it was, Marco? Fools that shame the wise. There it is. Came back to me. All right, fools that shame the wise. So let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that anything that you tell us in your word, God, it is good. It is helpful for our lives. Lord, it helps us, it rebukes us, it corrects us, and it equips us to do the work of the ministry. And we pray, Jesus, that that's what this word will do for us today, God, that it will equip us to be better disciples, to be more on fire, and Lord, to have a new understanding of all that we can be in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Amen. All right. I think I put this in the wrong order here, but I'm going to find it. I should number my, uh, should number my uh, pages here. Thank you. But it is an honor to be a co-laborer with Christ on this earth. Does anybody agree with me there? Come on. 1 Corinthians 3.9 tells us that we are co-workers in God's service. And sometimes it's good for us to take a step back and just look at all that God has allowed us to do. Just little old us, little old us, right? Who are we that God has called us? Who are we that God has forgiven us? But yet here we are, the ones that God has called, and through our obedience to that call, we are now the ones to reach out to the lost. We are now the ones, even within the church, to be shepherds to God's holy people, to walk beside them, to pray with them, to encourage them, and to teach them to know Jesus more, right? Teach them more about the things of God. I am just a girl who has been saved and has been given many chances by the Lord. And because of his forgiveness, because of his grace and his mercy and his kindness, he has forgiven me, redeemed me, justified me, and he has chosen me for this call. Amen? Just like you guys in this room right now. I want to tell you a little bit of my story I know I've told you guys a lot before, so some of it may be repetitive, but I just felt like it was a, a, a part of what God wanted me to share today. So I'm just going to talk about when I felt called to ministry, um, but I actually felt the call of God on my life since I was a little girl. I went to a Christian school. My mother was a Christian, and she brought us to church also, so I always saw Christians, and even after she died, like I said, my dad put me into a Christian school. So I always had awesome teachers around me that truly loved the Lord. I, I would, some of my teachers would come and be teachers for a little bit, and then they would stop teaching and go be missionaries in, like, Africa, you know? And then they would come back and preach at chapel. So I saw what ministry was like, and I always was intrigued by it. I was always like, how do I do that? <laughs> but it's weird because every church that I went to growing up with my family and then also as a teenager when my sister would start to take me, even though I was backslidden a lot of times, um, when I would go to church, there was really never a road to get into ministry. It was never talked about. 
It was kind of just like, those are the people that do that. And I just come here and I could be an awesome youth leader. I can be uh, an awesome children's leader. I can help with the children. But there was never really like a road laid out like, if you want to become a pastor, do this. And see, a lot of you in this room, this is your first church. And the moment you come in here, it's like, do you, do you have the call of ministry on your life? Like, it's presented to you. Not a lot of churches are like that, that I experienced growing up. They might be more now. I haven't been to another church in a long time. This is the one I stick with. Um, but growing up, it was not like that. And the way that I saw ministry was more like I can be a, a pastor's wife. That was like, that's it, you know? So I thought that maybe that was my calling. We know that it's not, right? <laughs> it is not my calling to be a pastor's wife. It's actually my calling to be a pastor, praise God. But I started to come to Metro, I think it was around 2006, I started to visit. I was not a good girl at that time. Um, my sister was already coming to the church with her husband, and I already knew Nancy and a few others that were coming because they went to my old church. And I started visiting and there isn't much that has changed in regard to preaching, okay? So every time I came into that church, this church actually, every time I came into this church, I would feel the power of God. I would be convicted of my sin. I would be nervous to come back the next time because I'm like, well, what are they going to expose about me next? You know, it's like the Holy Spirit had my number. So I remember um, coming here and you know, the way that we preach now, even to 200 people, 300 people, it was the same way we preach to 20 people, right? We don't give less just because there's less people in the room. Let's preach to five, six, the way that we would to a whole group of people. We're going to give our best every single time. So that was something that really stuck with me, too, as I walked into this church. But I came 2006. It had to be the beginning of 2006 or maybe the end. I don't remember. But I told you guys that I had had an abortion. Um, I got pregnant the first time and had an abortion, and I was just broken. I was hurting. I was sad. It was a horrible experience for me. Um, I, I mean, Planned Parenthood, I'm just going to go on a rabbit trail here, but Planned Parenthood is such a dark, dark place. Um, even me, I mean, I grew up as a Christian, but even me going in there as a sinner I felt, and I'm not even over, like lying to you or over, being over dramatic. I felt the darkness. I felt the oppression. And the moment that I walked in there, they took me, the, it's actually the one that we always preach at, the one on LaSalle. When I walked in there, they took, you, took me underground. So the abortion clinic is under. It's on the, in the basement, basically. So you like the top floor is like the clinic and you see doctors and stuff like that. But when you want to have an abortion, you have to take the elevator down and it's under. That's how it was back then. I don't know if things have changed. It's been a while. <laughs> but um, the minute that I walked off that elevator, I just remember weeping, crying. I couldn't stop. And when they called my name, they're asking me, why are you crying so much? It's like everybody else there kind of seemed like, they wanted to be there, like this was normal for them. Um, but I just couldn't stop crying, crying, crying. I didn't want to really do it. But I remember the woman counseling me, calling me back and saying, you know, why are you crying so much? And of course, I'm like, well, this is murder. And I don't want to murder my baby. 
I knew that because I've heard it at church. I grew up as a Christian. And she's like, oh, it's not murder. It's just a clump of cells. It's not a baby right now. You're, they lied to you, you know, basically tried to comfort me. It didn't help, but I actually did go through with it. It was a very, very cold experience. The doctor walking in, stone cold, didn't say hello to me, didn't, you know how doctors usually have bedside manner. They usually want to make you feel comforted. I mean, this doctor was there to do one job, and it was to execute my baby, right? So very cold, horrible place. I remember sitting there while the uh, procedure was being done, and there was a woman holding my hand next to me, singing to me. It was a very, it's almost very demonic now that I think back on it. It was a horrible experience. But after that, I was broken. I was hurting. I, I knew that the only place that I should run to and could run to is Jesus, right? So I came back to this church. I was sitting in the front row with Nancy. And of course, what is Pastor Joe preaching about that day? Abortion. Of course, right? Like... <laughs> why not? And he had a projector that used to hang next to him on the screen, and he puts up a baby that has been aborted, and I'm just sitting in the front row like, woo, all my tears coming down my eyes. And it's so funny because it happens still to this day. See, it's not that I felt like that was for me, and it was. The Holy Spirit was speaking to me. That was definitely a message for me. But it's not that like he chose only to speak about abortion that day. He spoke about abortion every week, right? It's the same thing now. Like, there's people in our church that might confess things in their life, pornography or, or the like or anything else, and then we're talking about it on a Sunday, and they're like, oh, they're talking about me. It's like, well, we talk about that every week. So it doesn't matter who you are. We're always going to talk about sin. We're always going to lift up righteousness and lift up holiness here. And if it's convicting you, then amen, it's for you. Listen up. But I, even after dealing with with that, coming here, confessing, praying with Nancy, and, and going through all of that, I still fell away, which is so sad. You know, the one, the one thing that I regret most in my life is that I didn't just give Jesus my life sooner, right? That's, that's really the only thing that I, I regret um, not doing. So I got pregnant again uh, in November of 2007 with my oldest daughter that is now 12 years old. Praise God for her. But God used that pregnancy to pull me back in. And I became faithful. I remember I used to go out evangelizing with all my, all my friends. It was like you guys all hanging out. It was Griselda and Susie, and we were all single at the time, except I had a big old belly right here. But I used to go out evangelizing at the nighttime at Belmont and Clark. I mean, I would be out there with my big old belly just preaching with them in the midnight hours, right? It was so much fun. Um, but I began to become faithful. God really used that pregnancy during that time, this church, to make me feel accepted, to make me feel loved. And, um, you know, they threw me a baby shower. They visited me after I had my baby in the hospital. I felt so loved by this church at that time. And as a single mom, I didn't feel alone. I had a family, like I said, this church. And one of the fun things to, to note about that time in my life is that Andrew actually had eyes for me while I was pregnant. <laughs> um, yeah, I was impregnated by another man's baby, but I got his attention for, somehow. I think it was the Lord for sure. Uh, but I learned this way later after we were already married that while I was pregnant, Andrew went home and asked his mom, how would you feel if I brought home a pregnant girl? And she was a little thrown off by that. <laughs> but... <laughs> um, but he liked me even then, and then 
praise God, he finally got my attention, and I have the best husband ever, so I love him very much. As Olivia began to grow, I again had a short time of being silly. My main temptation back then was men, uh, which you could see now as people come in and out of the church. A lot of times the things that pulls them away from God is a relationship, is men, is women. Uh, so we need to guard our hearts from that. But it was a silly moment. I fell away again, once again because of a boy. And when I came back, finally, I was done was done falling away. I was done leaving Jesus. I was so sick and tired of falling into the same trap over and over again. I got back into discipleship. I confessed everything that I needed to confess. I called every single person in my past that I was ever mean to, and I apologized to them. I mean, I was serious about Jesus this time, right? Have you guys been able to do that? Have you ever called, messaged someone from like high school like, man, I'm so sorry for being mean to you? Like the Holy Spirit just puts those things on your heart. That's how you know you really got saved. That's how you know. <laughs> Start saying sorry for everything. But I was just sick and tired of it. And here I am now as a single mom sitting here and I hear about SUM. They're starting a cohort. I had no idea what SUM was. Pastor Joe pulled a few people on the stage, and he starts to explain what it is, saying these people are going to go to Bible college. I mean, this was so new for our church. We had no, no clue. But I began, again, like that little girl that used to be intrigued by ministry. And finally, here it is. It's laid out in front of me, right, like a way to actually be in ministry, not just as a pastor's wife, but actually me as a pastor. And I began to get a, a, a godly jealousy in my heart, and I wanted what they had. I really did. I began to, um, at that time I was working, I was working as a pharmacy tech, and, and I loved my job. I loved being a pharmacy tech. I loved the medicine, I loved the chemistry, like all the stuff. He's looking at me funny. I did, it was really awesome. And I had pharmacists like on my side. They would always tell me like, you're so quick at learning, you should go to pharmacy school. You pick this up so quick, we'll write you letters of recommendation. And as I started to come to this church and see SUM, and then this pharmacy school thing was in my heart, I kind of had like a battle going on within me. And I started saying, like, God, what do you want me to do? Like, I need a confirmation because my family was thrilled, right? You're going to go to pharmacy school, man. You start at like six figures and you get more. I mean, they make some money. So I would be balling. And then here's this other thing. It's like, or I could become a pastor, <laughs> And I, could, and I could, you know, work hard. <laughs> so in my family's eyes, it was like, there is no question here. Of course you're going to go to pharmacy school, right? But God began to truly work in my heart during that time. And actually before I even heard about SUM or thought of Bible college, the Lord began to even speak to me about my job. Because I would, we give medicine to help people. But I also began to become grieved because we also gave medicine that was addictive. And I would watch kids that came, come in with their parents that are addicted to Ritalin or their eyes are glossed over because they've been on Adderall for so many years. And my heart began to get grieved. And I remember one time, this is, again, before the whole SUM thing happened, I remember one time I was giving meds to someone and the Lord said, you're giving them a temporary fix, but I've called you to give them something that will fix them for eternity. And I was like, whoa, okay. So those things started to happen in my heart before the call to Bible college. 
And um, so I was praying a lot, seeking God, asking him, what do I do? I began to seek him in my room, in my breaks on lunch. Do I, do I choose Bible college? Do I go to this? And Pastor Joe and Nancy had a way, they still do, of making complicated things like very simple so it's like, I would, I, well, I have a child, and I work 40 hours a week, and I don't have time for ministry, and blah, 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 and I, I, don't, I live with my dad, and all this stuff. And it's like, well, why don't you take your daughter, move into the girls' dorm, and just go to Bible college? It's like, oh, well, that was simple answer, right? <laughs> so that was easy enough, but I'm telling you, what happened during that time was very rough for me because people were not on my side. People that I thought would have my back in this decision did not have my back in this decision. Christians, Christians in my family that I thought would say, hey, she chose Bible college. I mean, man, I used to see her when she was jacked up. I remember her when she was addicted. You would think so, right? I saw her when she was addicted, and now she wants to go serve God and become in Bible college and be a pastor. You would think they would cheer me on, but it was the opposite. Oh, you're not going to be able to take care of your daughter. You're not going to make any money. You're not going to be able to do anything with your life. And there was one thing that they said to me, if you become a pharmacist, you'll be able to tithe better to the church. That was one, that was one of the arguments that was told to me. Like, it sounds noble, but it was the devil, Right? Because that's not what God called me to do. Okay, I could tithe more to the church. But I would be in disobedience to the call that God has put on my life. So silly, silly, silly devil. So I began to pray, like I said. And there was one day, I know I've shared this with you before. I was on my lunch break from work. And I was in my car. And I'm like, God, I just need something. I just need something. What am I choosing here? I just need a confirmation that I'm supposed to go to Bible college. And I heard the Lord tell me very clearly in my spirit, turn to Isaiah 55. And I turned there and I began to read it. And it says, come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Why, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? And as soon as I read that part, do, why spend your labor on what does not satisfy? I knew in that moment as the Holy Spirit came into my car so strongly that that was my call to forsake the world, to give up pharmacy school, to not go in that direction, and to spend my labor on something that will satisfy, on giving my all to saving souls and to giving them not a temporary fix through medicine, but a permanent fix with Jesus. Amen? Amen. But how foolish, how foolish I became after I made that decision in the eyes of everyone around me. I was now talked about. I was called brainwashed, told, like again, that I wouldn't care for my daughter, be able to, that I'm not going to make any money. I told you that. And it was the devil and I just know that so many of you guys have already experienced that with people that are close to you, family members that are close to you that you thought would have your back or that you thought would cheer you on from the sidelines, and they haven't. They've actually been used against you to discourage you as you go and answer the call of God. So we've become foolish to them. 
I had no idea when I even started Bible college too what I was called to do. I know many of you guys are starting out and it's like, well, what am I going to do? Some of you know. Some of you say, I, I feel called to the youth. I feel called to do crusades and I'm evangelist and things like that. And other of you are like, I'm just being obedient. I'm just being obedient to be here because I know that God called me to do this, right? And that was me. I had no idea of what exactly I was to do, though I had dreams in my heart, though I had moments where it's like, I want, I want to preach the gospel. <laughs> I want to make disciples, but everybody should be doing that. There wasn't a certain call that I felt. Like I said, I just felt and knew that I was being obedient to the Lord. And I remember thinking to myself many times, because a lot of my friends, like I said, they were, we were all single, and nobody was really in the position that I was in my group of friends. Nobody else had a baby outside of wedlock. I was the only one in the house with a baby. And it was beautiful. I mean, she was the, which you guys experience right now. She's like the baby of the house, you know. Um, everybody loved my daughter. Everybody cared for her. But sometimes I felt like, man, I'm like the lowest of low here. And sometimes that's a self-abasing pride. Like we don't give you an out for that, right? But I, it was a really real thing that I was dealing with. And I remember being at the altars, and, uh, and I was kneeling down, and those thoughts began to come to me again, and I began to just give them to Jesus. I used to say, man, I'm like the lowest one here. I'm the only one with a child, I'm the only one that's a single mom, working full-time, going to school full-time. I'm not getting a break, barely have babysitters, barely see my daughter. I mean, there was a lot in my heart, and it's like, how, God, is something good going to come out of this? I'm the lowest one here. And I heard the Lord tell me in that moment, and it didn't make sense to me, and I had to hold on to it. But he said, you may be the lowest in this ministry right now, but if you are faithful, I will take you to be one of the ones on the top. And that was a promise that God gave me. And as soon as I became the director of operations, which wasn't that long ago, it hasn't been that long, I felt the Lord tell me, remember when I made you that promise? It was years, I mean years, years of discipleship, years of messing up, years of needing to, to get right again and do this thing and all of that stuff, but it was because I was faithful, right? And I know that God's not done with me yet, just like God's not done with you yet. There's so many more places for us to go. There's so many more positions to be filled by you guys and by me, and this is just the beginning of what God has for us as a church, amen? Amen. But we are seen as the foolish ones of this world, right? The people in this room right now, we are not like the prestigious ones of the community. We're, we're not the ones sitting around round tables at, you know, high, high rises downtown talking about what, what's going to be next for an important business, right? We're not the wealthiest in this room, and that's the thing that's so beautiful about Jesus is he takes the things that are unlikely, he takes the things that are unwise, he takes the things that are dirty and he flips them around and he uses them for his glory. So he took the unlikely girl, the unlikely one that had an abortion, that was a single mom, that didn't have much going for herself, by herself, and he flipped her around and he uses her for his glory to bring shame to those that think that they are wise. We need to be encouraged in this room by those that are in our Bible. There are so many examples in our Bibles of people that were unlikely, people that were unwise, people that were not seen as, 
as wonderful and wealthy and all of this stuff, many of the people that God chose had things about them that were like, really, you, you want to be used me? I'm, I'm like nobody. I, I can barely speak, you know? I stutter. I know that this is something that's going to speak to some of you in this room because I know that some of you still deal with the insecurity and uh, the questions and the comparing yourself to people around you. So I want you to listen up and be encouraged by the people in your Bible today. So let's turn to Exodus 3. Exodus 3 is talking about Moses. And it's when the Lord appeared to him in the burning bush. So we're going to read 1 through 14. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him within, from within the bush. He said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites have reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And then it continues to go on for a little bit, but we're going to stop there for now. But this is Moses, right? He's a hero of the faith. It's someone that we, in this day, we look up to. A guy that saw signs and wonders. I mean, he performed miracles. He put his staff down in the Red Sea, parted in front of him powerful. The Bible says that Moses met to, with God face to face. He was a friend of God. And here he is in the moment where he gets his calling, he is not able to just say, okay, I will go. He actually has kind of a hard time. He's like, wait a minute, who am I? Are you talking to me? I mean, dude, he's literally talking to a bush on fire that is not being burnt up. And he still does not have the faith in that moment to say, Wow, God, you're calling me. It's like, no, in that moment, he was able to see that he wasn't all that great. 
Because in the, in the moment when you're face to face with Jesus, you begin to see that you have faults. You have insecurities. And it's up to us in that moment to understand that when God calls us, it's not just based upon our greatness. It's based upon his greatness, right? So our eyes have to be fixed off of ourself. And Moses in this time, his eyes were on self and it wasn't fixed on God. And you become, when your eyes are fixed on self, you become absorbed with yourself. You become selfish and it's not the way that God has chosen us to be. So how many of us in this room have responded to God in this way? God, do you know who you're talking to? I'm just, I'm just a girl from around the hood. I don't know who, who would say that in this room. I'm just from the hood. I'm just from the streets, God, right? Probably Tina. Tina would be like, God, I'm just a girl from the hood. But you guys too, are any of you born into royalty? Have any of you guys come from a line that is rich and famous and all those things? No, we are the foolish things of this world, and God has given us a call just like he gave Moses that day to go and do great things for him. Let's go to Moses. I'm Moses. Let's go to Exodus uh, 4. I'm going to keep reading what happens as God keeps on talking to Moses. He said, Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me or say the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and turned it back into the staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that you may believe that the Lord, your God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous, and then it was white as snow. Now put your, your, it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back in the cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said to, said to him, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. So here God is telling Moses, giving him examples, telling him, yes, I've called you. Moses is already having a hard time understanding why God would send him to someone like Pharaoh, why God has chosen him. So God starts to show him miracles. You have nothing to be afraid of. Throw your staff down, pick it up, put your hand in. Now it's clean. I mean, God is just showing him thing after thing after thing. And you would think at this moment, after hearing from a bush that is not be burned up and seeing these miracles, you would think at this moment he was able to receive. But what does he say back to the Lord? He says, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. How many of you guys can relate to Moses? <laughs> I can relate to Moses. I'm not always the best speaker. I could compare myself to others and say, man, they're better than me. And I know all of us because that's a human, a natural human thing that we do. But we, are, we don't have to be eloquent in speech. And that's what I'm going to get to. Because God uses those that don't have much for his glory. And praise God that we can be used for his glory the other person that had a hard time when they got called was Jeremiah. If you just turn to Jeremiah 1, 
4 through 8. God called Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations. He's called the weeping prophet. And it says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I would set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So here he comes back to God. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. When he called him to be a prophet, he had an excuse. He had an excuse just like Moses did of being too young of not knowing how to speak, not knowing what to say, not knowing if the words that he was going to speak, anybody was even going to listen to him. But that's not what God was concerned about. God was concerned about their obedience. God was concerned about that they would listen to him and go despite all of that. Because it's beyond our, um, it's beyond our, our reasoning and our ability to speak. It's God that is going to speak through us. So we know that God calls the unlikely. God called Noah, who was a drunkard. God called Rahab, who was a prostitute, and he used her. God used David. He was an adulterer and a murderer. God used Jonah, a man that was afraid and ran from him. God used Matthew, a tax collector, who was an outcast from his community, someone that they didn't want to be around. Tax collectors were horrible. And God used Jesus in the most unlikely way. So we can understand now, even through the story of our Savior, that God loves to do things outside of human imagination and human reasoning. Even though there were so many prophecies in our Bible of how Jesus would come about, the Jews missed him because they thought that it would be better for God to send the Messiah as a conquering king. But instead, God sent him as a baby. God sent him as a baby to be raised as an ordinary man like you and I who have to get dressed like us, eat like us, use the bathroom like us, become tired like us. He became like us. The Jews missed him because it didn't make sense to their mind, even though there were prophecies before that. God used the unlikely story of Jesus to shame what they thought should have happened. They were wise, right? They were teachers of the law. They should have known better. They were so wise in the eyes of the world, and they missed it because it was an unlikely story. God called Paul and used Paul, a man that killed and persecuted Christians. On his way to even arrest Christians in Damascus, Jesus showed up to him, right, and called him and said, you're going to turn your life around and be used for me. But what do we need to understand? Do we always need to know what to say when God calls us? Do we need to be wise? And I'm not talking about having wisdom later. Do we need to be seen as wise in the world's eyes? Do we need to be, have persuasive words and eloquent speech and always have the right answer all the time? No, but just like Paul, we need to have a message. And when we preach, we need to not only use wise and persuasive words. We don't need to use wise and persuasive words. We need to have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Our message to those around us needs to be the message of the cross. It doesn't sound wise to them because it's an unlikely way for salvation. It's too simple. 
it baffles their mind. How do I just believe in a man that died for my sins and all of a sudden I am saved? It's unlikely. It doesn't make sense. But our message is a message of power and our message brings shame to those that think that they are wise. Some people are looking for wise words and persuasive words. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 1 and let's read what Paul said about the message that we preach being foolishness to, these, to the people of this world. All right, it says, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brothers, Sothenus, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy people, together with all those everywhere who are called by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you. We could have just started. You're at the wrong place, brother. Maybe I messed up. But grace and peace to all of you. Amen? <laughs> Let's go to 18. 1, 18. There you go. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligence I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where are the philosophers of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what we was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and all and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers, keep going. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standard. Does anybody agree with that? Was anybody wise by human standards when God called you? Were you? Were many of you influential? Were you of noble birth? No, but God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the lowly things of this world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. But it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Like I said, the message that we preach is foolishness to the world. It is too simple to the standards of their wisdom. We have nothing, though, in this room to be intimidated about. You have a message, and it is not coming with wise and persuasive words. That's to set you free today, that you don't have to know everything, that you don't have to be the smartest, that you don't have to be the one in the community that everybody looks at. But what you do need is the message of the cross that is demonstrated with the power of the Holy Ghost when you preach 
this message. That is all you need as someone that is called by God. You don't need to be wise in their eyes because you will not be. You look like a fool. But God has called you to actually shame them. We were despised, but God called us to meet, preach this message that is foolishness to them. And we also need to apply the message to our own lives. And now because of this message, we have a boast. But our boast is not talking about ourself or has confidence in our flesh or in our own abilities. It is a boast in the Lord for who he is and all that he has done. It is only Jesus that can take someone like me and turn her into who I am today. It is only Jesus that could take you past your trauma, your pain, your past, your sin, your insecurity, your shortcoming, and make you into a powerful man and woman of God. So now you have a reason to boast, but your boast is not in self. Your boast is in Jesus. Amen? So if you're going to boast, you're not talking about this anymore. You're talking about him and what he has done and who he is. Let's go to chapter 2. If you could just scroll up just a little bit. It says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So number one, we should resolve to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified and preach it with a demonstration of power. And number two, I believe that we should guard our hearts and not become caught up with preachers that have this fluff when they speak. They're always trying to sound wise or sound persuasive. I believe that this is why people are so easily deceived because they're looking for something beyond what we're preaching. They're looking for something that's wise. They're looking for something that is so persuasive. And this is where the cults come in and say, come on, I got more for you than just Jesus dying on the cross. I got more from you than that message of foolishness over there. But we even need to guard our hearts from that. The message that is preached should always be one that lifts up Jesus crucified, buried, and rose again. That is the message that we should always hear and that should convict us and that we should preach. It is about Jesus Christ and his story. Amen? So I believe that we need to know who we are in Christ. Yes, we are nobodies, and I know that we used to have a preacher that used to come here, Glenn, Glenn Badonski, and he used to say, I'm just a nobody telling everybody about somebody that could save anybody, right? And that's who we are. We're just nobodies that were saved. We were just nobodies that were called, that were chosen, and through our obedience, here we are today, and we have a message, not one with only wise and persuasive words. We're not the smartest. We're not the best even though we strive to be excellent for Jesus. 
but we might not always know what to say. We might even have issues comparing ourselves to others, but what we do have is a message of power, and it should have a demonstration every time that we preach it on the streets. We should feel the Holy Spirit tugging on people's hearts. People should be convicted of their sin, and people should turn their lives around to Jesus. But we need to know who we are in Christ now. We are not just some little silly people that meet here every every Monday for school. We are made new in Christ And it's important to know your identity in Christ as you take this message into the world. So let's go to Ephesians 1 so that we can read about what Paul says we are now in Christ. Let's read it. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Go ahead and uh, put it up. Thank you. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus, in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, and he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven, and on earth under Christ. Keep going, please. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance unto the redemption of those who are God's possession to praise of his glory. We are unlikely. We are unwise ones. But we get called to shame the wise of this world. Not with our words, with our wisdom, or with our eloquence, but with the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And praise God that we now have a boast. This is our boast now. Our boast is not in ourself. Our boast is not in our own knowledge, how much of the Bible that we have memorized or anything that we have done with our own hands and our own knowledge and our own wisdom. Our boast is in him. It's that when we stepped into him, into Christ, we are now covered by the grace and the mercy and the righteousness of Christ. And he has called us his own. So take boast when you boast, boast in the Lord and know that God has called you to do mighty things in this world, even though you don't come from royalty, even though you don't come from a place that is a pristine. Is that the word pristine? I don't know. There it is. Prestige. Even though you might not be the likely ones, 
know who you are in Christ and use his message and preach it with power. Amen? Amen. Let's stand to our feet and let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Lord, that in you, we are free in you. We are um, able to do all that you have called us to do. And God, you have called us to be preachers of your word. And I pray, Lord, even though we may be the unlikely ones, even though our our past, we don't come from anything great. Lord, you still chose us just like you chose Moses, just like you chose Noah, just like you chose other unlikely men and women of God that we see in our Bible. You have chose them and they did great and mighty things for your kingdom. And we know that in this room that we could do mighty things for your kingdom too. And just like Paul, God, we pray that we would not come to people with wise and persuasive words, but only with the message that says, I know Christ and I'm going to preach him crucified. And through that, I'm going to have a demonstration of power through the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the calling on our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for who you have made us to be. We are able now to do everything, God, because we are in you. And we thank you, Jesus, for your strength and your mercy and your kindness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.
Praise the Lord. It is good to be in the house of the Lord, to see everybody's wonderful faces. Um, this is our Elevate Christmas night. Oh, night divine, give a hand clap for what God is doing. Again, so good to see everybody. I'm going to be having the privilege of sharing with you the gospel presentation, and uh, we're going to have an awesome time of food and fellowship afterward. But I want to encourage you guys to really listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying and what he's doing tonight. You're not just here to eat food and talk about random stuff and then leave the building with nothing having changed in your life. Um, I believe God wants to speak to some of you. I believe God wants to speak to all of you. Amen. How many of you believe that God wants to speak to you directly today, right now? Amen. So with that being said, let's open up with a word of prayer, and we're going to get into our word, our gospel presentation. If you can all bow your heads and close your eyes. Father God, we thank you for your presence in this place, Lord. We ask you that you would have your way again, Lord God. You're moving. Touch each and everybody here, God. Thank you for the people that have come out, and uh, I just pray, Lord, that you would encourage them, uplift them, and challenge them, God, to live fully for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Well, Today's message is going to be entitled, The Life of the Savior. For those of you who don't know, we've been in a sermon series um, going over the life, uh, going over the kind of the timeline of Jesus, how the Old Testament uh, prophets were waiting for the Messiah to come forth. The first message Joby preached was about waiting for the Savior, and then last week Joby preached about um, the birth of the Savior for thousands, uh, for years, the Jewish people were waiting for the Messiah to come. They were waiting for their king to come and liberate them and uh, rule and reign from Jerusalem. There were Old Testament prophecies about somebody who would come and bring redemption. And for years, these prophets were talking about this Messiah, and everybody was hoping, everybody was waiting. Joby touched on that in one of his sermons. And then finally, the Messiah comes. The king arrives on the planet Earth. Emmanuel, God with us. The angels come, they tell the shepherds, go spread the news. The Messiah, the king is here. That's what we are supposed to be celebrating Christmas about, right? That the Messiah, King Jesus, came down to earth. So everybody's excited. There's a sense of hope. Herod gets a little jealous. He gets scared. He puts out a, a, a death notice for all the male boys in the land because he understands there's a coming king. He understands that there is somebody who might threaten his authority and his rule. And when Jesus was walking about on this earth, he was performing signs, he was performing wonders, he was doing a lot of great and wonderful things. There was an expectancy that this man, Jesus Christ, was the king, the one who was going to bring liberation, the one who was going to redeem the people of Israel, to overturn the Roman government. So when Jesus is going around healing people and crowds are following him, they're not just following him because he has a cool social media platform. Jesus wasn't on there with a cell phone going live every Monday for Monday motivation. That's not what was happening. Jesus was walking around fulfilling prophecies and people were waking up. They were saying there's something different about this man. He speaks with authority. Even the religious leaders noticed and realized that about Jesus. They expected him to be the king. They were expecting him to have a regime change, to start a revolution. 
They thought that the purpose of Jesus' life, the purpose of the Savior's life when he was on the earth, was to overthrow the Roman government, to take his rightful place and rule and reign in Jerusalem. And there's prophecies about that, and they weren't really far off. They were right for believing that. However, they missed something very key and integral, and that's what I want to talk to you guys about tonight, wrapping up this series about the life of Jesus and the life of the Savior. Well, if we can all turn to Matthew chapter 16, this is where we're going to be reading from. With that context in mind, let's go ahead and read Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 26. This is what it says. I'm going to go ahead and read it out here in the NET. It says that, From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. I'm going to read the whole thing through, so pay attention. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid, Lord, this must not happen to you. Fill in the blank. What do you think Peter's thinking at this point? Jesus is telling him that he must be handed over to suffer and be killed. I'm going to revisit that in just a minute. This must not happen to you. But Jesus returned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. This is where we see that famous passage. Peter got a licking. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Because you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it benefit a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his life? Or what can a person give in exchange for his life? Amen. Praise God. So here we have this Messiah, this King. I had so many verses that I just wanted to jam-pack in there, but our time is short. Later on in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus goes down Jerusalem riding on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah. The Jewish people were saying, Hosanna. They were praising him. They were expecting Jesus to take over and have a revolution and fight for the Jewish people. Bring justice and the opposition. Drop like a, a, have a mic drop moment and Jesus just have a showdown with all the oppressors and all the evil and wickedness that was going on in that time. That's what they were expecting. That's what they were waiting for. That's what Peter was thinking Jesus was. And again, Jesus is going to do that, so they were right in believing that. But they missed that at that time, Jesus was not coming to do those things. Peter thought that Jesus had to, again, rule and reign and fight a war and start a revolution. So when Jesus, in, chapter, in verse 21 turns to Peter and says, hey, turns to Peter and the rest of the disciples, the son of man, Jesus, I have to go and suffer many things. I have to be killed. I have to turn myself into the elders and the priests. Peter does not understand this. He's confused. 
He doesn't understand what's going on. The person that I've been waiting for all this time, the person that I grew up learning about from the prophets, is telling me that he must die? Is telling me that he must suffer? What does suffering and death have to do with anything? What does suffering and death have to do with redemption? Why is Jesus, my Messiah, my King, talking about suffering and dying? But that's just what Jesus came to do. The purpose of Jesus' life, the purpose of the Savior's life, was to die. Was to die. That's the big crescendo moment. The Jewish people... When they were saying Hosanna, that's not what they were expecting. That's not what they wanted to hear. They said, we'd rather take Barabbas. Let's get this guy. He has a better chance of getting us a revolution than Jesus. They weren't expecting their king to come and suffer and die on a cross. That didn't fit with their worldview. That didn't fit with their understanding. They missed all the other verses that talked about Jesus being a suffering servant. And then Peter tries to correct Jesus. Hold on, Jesus, you don't understand. That's not why you're here, Jesus. Let me help you out. You're not here to do that. You're here to start a revolution, Jesus. Let me help you remind you of who you are. You need a little pep talk. Here's Peter trying to help Jesus out in his ministry. Here's Peter trying to rescue Jesus from suffering. Here's Peter trying to rescue Jesus from death. Sounds like a lot of the American church today. Peter's trying to rescue Jesus, help him out a little bit. Hey, that's not the point. That's not why you're here on this earth. And what does Jesus say back to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have my interest in mind. You have your own. You have man's interest. So Jesus came on the earth, lived a perfect life, didn't sin, died on the cross, gave himself up to suffer for mankind. There's so much to unpack with that being said. If we can all go to Romans chapter 5 really quickly. Romans chapter 5. Oscar, if you can put that verse up. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. I'm going to read a few verses here just to give an understanding of why Jesus is suffering and dying on the cross. Verse 6, it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. See, Peter didn't understand that. The Jewish people didn't understand that. They weren't expecting Jesus to turn upside down the spiritual kingdom, but that's what he did. That's what his goal was. He died for the ungodly. How many here are ungodly? How many in here were in sin before you came to Christ? If you don't have Jesus, you are ungodly. You need to repent. You need to stop living in sin. That's not God's will for your life. That's not why Christ died on the cross. He died on the cross so that you can be free. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. While you were still in sin, while you were still an enemy of God, Christ died for you. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Praise the Lord. That's the good news. That's the gospel. If you're in sin, if you're wicked, if you're evil, and you are living a perverted lifestyle, God can change you. He can set you free. You need to stop living in sin and in rebellion and repent and turn away from that. Turn to God. That's why Christ died for you. We're going to have an altar call in just a minute. 
But if you are not right with God, you need to get right today or else you will go to hell. You need to repent. You need to come to Christ. Jesus died for you so that you would not have to die and go to hell. There is hope. There is joy like we were singing joy to the world. Now I want to go back to Matthew 16 because perhaps some of you may be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not that bad of a kid. You know, in youth group, you get a lot of church kids get a lot of people who grew up in the church, you know, they know some verses, they know a few things, you know what I mean, they're a little experienced, and they think to themselves, well, I'm not that bad, I'm not like those other people on that other side of town, come on guys, listen up here, Jesus says, I must suffer, I must die, I'm going to the cross, but did anybody catch what Jesus said in verse 24? Go to Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus turns it back on his disciples. He says, you think it's just me? You think I'm the only one who's supposed to suffer and die here? Well, I got news for you, disciples. You're next. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to become my follower, do you want to be a follower of Jesus? I'm not talking about a church attendee. I'm not, somebody, I'm not talking about somebody who just wants to look like a Christian and play the game. I'm talking about somebody who wants to follow Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus, this is what you have to do. The requirements that Jesus gives you, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross, and you must follow Jesus. You must follow him. Because whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For everybody listening, this is the goal of your life to die. That's it. The purpose of Jesus' life was to die on the cross. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, now it's your turn. You have to do it. You need to pick up your cross. You think I'm just the only one getting crucified? You do it now. You die to your flesh. You put yourself, your desires, your ambitions, what you think is right or what's wrong, you put that to death. You're dead now. How many of you guys are dead today? How many of you guys are so not full of yourself? How many of you guys are so dead that nothing else matters but Jesus? How many of you guys are so dead to yourself that you can go up to somebody, a stranger, on the sidewalk and start preaching to them? How many of you are so dead to yourself that you obey your parents without complaining and throwing a fit like some kind of spoiled brat. How many of you guys are so dead to your sin, dead to yourself, that your ambitions, your dreams, your hopes matter zero? Because only God matters. See, somebody who is dead is dead. Doesn't matter. Can't do anything. There's no hope. For that person who's dead, they're dead. It's over. But my fear is that some of you in this place are holding on to too many things and you're not fully dead. And you're trying to carry around things on your own. And the thing is, you can't be a disciple of Christ if you're still doing that. If we can all stand up. If I can have Will and Cielo come up to the... Uh, to the stage. I have a very simple altar call. Thank you for your time. This is it.
before we have the altar call, I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to convict some of you in this place. Oh, Jesus, please grip the hearts of every single person in here, God. Oh, God, if this room were to be dead to themselves and carry their cross as you did, Lord, the world would be changed. Chicago would be changed. Holy Spirit, right now, Lord, move upon your people. There's so much more I could say. But if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, and you are not dead to yourself, you think too much about yourself, you think too highly of yourself, it's all about you and nobody else. If that's you, you need to change that. You need to make that right because you're not a disciple if you think that way. Think about the rest of this. Think about today, this past week. How many times did you think about yourself? Compare that to how many times you thought about God. Which is greater? Do you think more about yourself and what you want? Or is God the center of your life? If you are not right with God and you are in sin, there's hope for you. God can change you, but you need to repent. I want to invite you to come up to these altars and ask Jesus to come into your heart. Repent of your sin. Turn away. Live for Jesus. If you come to church, if you come to church and you know all the different stories out there, but you're not dead. You haven't denied yourself. You're not denying anything. You need to change that. You need to make it right. Come up to these altars and ask them to pray for you, to pray with you. And thirdly, if you just want to be more abandoned for Jesus and live fully surrendered to the Lord, come up. We'll pray with you that you will not be thinking too highly of yourself and be giving in to temptation or sin or whatever it may be. I'm going to give you a few moments to think about what I'm saying and pray and come up to these altars. Holy Spirit, come. We thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice that you made for us, Lord God, on the cross. Oh, Jesus, you died on the cross for our sins, Lord. You gave us the example of what it meant to live a life laid down. So, Holy Spirit, help us, God, to live a crucified life, carrying our cross, counting our flesh dead. Help us understand what that means, Holy Spirit. For the next two minutes, if you're a believer in this place, I just want you to pray over everybody in this room that they will live a life laid down. Families count on it right now. Oh, if you don't die to your flesh, your family is going to go to hell in a handbasket. If you don't lay down your flesh, there's no hope for the next generation. People's lives depend on whether or not you will lay down your life for the gospel. You 
pray that God moves upon each and every one of us. We still have a few moments left. Come on, Holy Spirit. Do it right now, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that none of us would matter in this place. God, I pray that none of our ambitions would matter to us, but only you, God. Holy Spirit, help us, Lord God, to be humble and admit, Lord God, that we need you. Help us, God, be humble and admit that we need you. We can't do it on our own. We need to lay down our lives for the gospel. Help us to carry the cross, Lord. Oscar, if you can turn that song up. Let's just worship before we close out right now. The altars are open. Jesus, have your way. transition now if you need prayer if you're thinking about the word and the verses that we mentioned feel free to talk to any of the leaders here who would love to pray with you and talk to you uh, here it is Joby amen praise God give a hand clap for Jesus amen okay so if I could have everybody come to the altar we're gonna have a group picture group picture so I know if you didn't have your makeup done or whatever it's okay it's all right there's a lot of people a lot of faces to distract but if we can have everybody come to the altars please for a group picture right here right where right where Will's standing if I can have everybody come up everybody come up we're gonna have a group picture maybe short maybe shorter people in front and then we get the taller people on the back there you go you're tall leaders if you can help everyone get to the, the stage praise God Okay, can we have everybody? We got room, we got room. Even the parents, if we can have the parents up as well. We got it. You can get the little ones too. 
Leaders, if you can help everyone, help them find a spot. You need help, Will? Sorry. Okay, so. Hey, what's up, Sarah? Good to see you. Yeah, I know. Good. Well, it's good to see you finally. You know what? We can have you. You see where, you see where Fernando, he's with the NASA. You see Bree? Right in front of Libni. Can we have you right? Oh, just one second. One second. Thank you for your cooperation and your patience. I'm positive, 100%. No, 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 right? So right where Libni is, so we can just say, boom, right there. You see how that spot just cleared? Okay. So we might have to have some crouchers here, right? We can see the crouchers. Can we see it? So... If I can have anyone that is not in the picture crouch right there. Yep, right there, right there. 